So Monica and I were newly married. We were young Christians, and we kind of uh, made friends with a couple in our church who were missionaries to India, and they kind of became our mentors, and we attended their Bible study. So one night we had them over for dinner, and after dinner I asked the wife how she had come to Christ. I somewhat assumed she was raised a Christian, she was a missionary, and she said, no, Bob, it was, you know, nothing could be farther from that. She said, I was actually a high-end model in New York. And I was walking around Manhattan one night in a blizzard, about 16 inches of snow, strung out on cocaine, and I saw a great light. It wasn't an angel. It was the front headlights of a New York City taxi cab. And uh, the guy said, why don't you get in, ma'am? I'm not going to charge you. I'll drive you wherever you need to go. And she said, this man drove me to my apartment. And right before I got out of the car, uh, he handed me a track. Now, for you millennials, that's T-R-A-C-T. It's a little pamphlet that tells you about Christ. I think you received some of them on the way in. And uh, they're really small. It was a real popular evangelistic tool in the 70s and 80s. And it wasn't any track. It was a chick track. Do you, anybody remember those? Now, it wasn't for girls, like a chick track. It was made by a man called Jack Chick. Uh, we'll show you one up on the screen. Uh, these were unique because they were drawn in comic book fashion. And this one was called This Was Your Life. And very memorable. And there's a picture of a guy with a pipe and a beverage in his hand. He's living the good life. Life is good. And then the very next scene, the Grim Reaper comes and takes his life. And there's a verse that we're going to look at today that it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And so he's at his funeral, but he's really not there. He's in the judgment and he's crying out in sweat. Why didn't anyone tell me this was going to happen? So it was a very hard-hitting track. And um, she goes up and reads this tract, and at the end it says, here's how you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And she prays that prayer and goes to bed. Wakes up the next morning and looks around her apartment, and it was almost like scales fell from her eyes. Uh, she found out that her roommate, the girl she was living at, when, was in the witchcraft, and there was witch paraphernalia all over the apartment. Uh, finds a church, goes to Bible school, becomes a missionary. It's just an amazing story. Now, fast forward 20 years later, I'm at a pastor's conference in Moscow. And I'm teaching several sessions, the conference ends, and we had a little round table with local pastors before they dispersed. There was about eight or nine of them, and there was a man on my left named Ellie. He was a pastor in St. Petersburg. And so again, I said, Ellie, how did you come to Christ? He said, well, Pastor Bob, when the Iron Curtain came down, there was a flood of evangelism, and people were handing out tracts. And no lie, I'm walking through St. Petersburg, guy hands me this tract, I go back to my apartment, I pray the prayer, find a church, now I'm a pastor. And I'm like, what was the name of that tract? And I'm as serious as serious can be. He said, I don't know if you ever heard of it, it was called This Was Your Life. And I told this story about seven years ago, and someone actually mailed me the Russian tract, and I keep it right in my office and I look at it every day, and I marvel at God's grace. Now, am I here to tell you about track evangelism today? No. God can use anything. God can use a message in a bottle. He normally uses the human instrument. But the reason I want to bring up this story is because I think this Jack Chick track was based on something that is very sobering to all of us, and it's actually the scripture we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 this morning where it says it's appointed for man to die once 
But after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. If the Bible's clear on anything, it's clear on this. You and I have received one and only life. Life is precious. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But we get one. We get one shot at this. And the second thing the Bible's clear about is that one day, as creative beings, we will give an account of this life to a creator. Again, this couldn't be more clear, and yet people don't want to talk about this. People don't want to talk about one day this life will end. I'll prove it to you. Wherever you go today, barbecue, uh, maybe a kid's baseball game, as people gather around you, start talking about death and see what happens. You will be alone within five minutes. Because seriously, people are like, life is too hard. Let's think happy thoughts. We don't want to think about death. And yet for everybody in this room, on God's day timer is the day, month, and year when you will leave this earth. It's a very sobering truism. Now in America, we're trying to cheat death, right? We have Botox and vitamins and diets, and I'm all for looking good until you get there. Believe me, all right? You know, Walt Disney froze himself, and we're talking about time machines and all this stuff. But... uh, I just Googled it again, and the death rate is still hovering at about 100%. We're all going to leave this planet one day. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says there's time to be born and time to die. The time between those is very short. Job said, my days are swifter than a runner, a mere shadow. Moses said that we get 70 years, and maybe by God's grace, 80 years. I told you a couple weeks ago I met that woman who's 100. She's on like triple grace. Uh, but even that's not a guarantee. That's generally the, th- the way things will go. Some of the greatest Christians who have ever lived died young. Thomas Aquinas, still one of the greatest thinkers in Christianity, died at 49. St. Francis died at 43. The great John Calvin, who wrote the Institutes, died at 55. And even Jesus only lived 33 years on the planet. I so appreciated Jonathan Evans' talk at Wednesday at Sizzling Summer, where we looked at one verse in Acts where it said, David served and influenced his generation and then died with his fathers. In other words, David lived to influence. And so we're only going to be here as long as God wants us to be here. As long as God wants us to influence, that's how long we're going to be here. Now, as much as people come to grips with death is inevitable, it's what people think about after death that's problematic. Now, I want to go through a kind of a series of false hopes, just in case someone's here that might think this way, someone was invited, or maybe you kind of still dip your toe in this ideology. There are seven, several false hopes that I've looked at. The first one is, yes, there's life after life. But we really don't know what it looks like, right? We really have no guarantee. No one's ever figured it out. No one's ever come back and told us about it. Probably the leading example of this is reincarnation, right? Some people even use Bible verses, like a man must be born again, like they twist Bible verses for that. Now, in the West, we have a pop variety of reincarnation um, where we think, okay, you know, I'll live this life, then I'll come back in the next life, and then when I'm good enough, I'll go to heaven. I actually adopted that in college because it sounded pretty cool, like this is the way it goes, and gets you off the hook somewhat. Uh, Reincarnation, if you believe in this, is both cruel and illogical if you think it through. And nobody does. First of all, it's cruel. Talk to anybody in India. 
The reason why you see people on the side of the road in India destitute and in poverty is because people don't want to help them because the idea is they must have done something wrong in a previous life. This is karma. And they're going to come back in the next life, so no bother helping them now because all things will kind of work themselves out. It's also cruel in this regard. You have a family here, loved ones here, and then in the next life you're going to come back, and you don't even have a guarantee of being a human. You might be a tick, a dog, a frog, uh, something of that nature. Pretty cool ideology. It's also illogical. Think about this. If we don't even know why we're here, how do we know how we're going to get to another life, right? It's like when people say, uh, we don't know how Earth was established or how the species got here. Maybe we were seeded by aliens. Well, how did the aliens get there? See, that's called extending the logic. Actually, it makes no sense. But a lot of people are banking on this. The second false hope, which is really picking up steam, is when you're dead, you're dead. Poof, your candle goes out. Now, why anyone will believe this, I'll never know. It's almost like saying, yes, when I'm dead, I'm dead. So in other words, everything I'm doing now is meaningless, right? renders everything meaningless and without purpose in this life. C.S. Lewis makes still the greatest argument I have ever read in mere Christianity. In the early chapters, he doesn't even use the Bible. He's using mere reasoning. And he looks around the world and he says, look, there is a law of human nature, and I'll prove it to you. You see a man get robbed. Three instincts come to your mind. I need to help that man. Number two, I need to run and preserve my own life so I don't get caught up in what's happening to him. And then there's a third instinct we all forget about. We know the first instinct is right. We should help that man. You see, people will argue, well, we were taught this, or it's instinct, and it's in our nature. Yeah, maybe it's in our nature to help someone. Maybe it's in our nature to flee. But why is there always the predominant idea that I really should be helping and, of course, the answer is God put a conscience in us, and we're a living soul. Probably the leading thinker and writer of Your Candle Goes Out theology is the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. Uh, he spent a lot of money at an ad agency and came up with this clever campaign where they put him on double-decker buses all over London. goes like this. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that clever? People probably read that and thought, ah, oh, right? So he believes that, and we believe it's appointed for a man to die in the judgment. Let's break down Dawkins' premise. There's probably no God. Do you realize to come up with that one statement, they probably spent weeks of brainstorming? Now, Dawkins believed there is no God. He wrote the God delusion. But they put the word probably in there because it is a seed of doubt. There probably is no God. Now, you don't want to talk about probability with Dawkins. Because every argument you would give Richard Dawkins, like, like why are we the perfect spot? Like, in other words, if, if our climate was hotter, we wouldn't be here if it was colder. If we look at the thousands of arguments that would just be like, oh, my gosh, uh, this is fine-tuned and it's perfect, Dawkins' answer is always time and chance. Given enough time, there's enough chance for anything to happen. In fact, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, he said with enough time to go by, a statue could wave at you. Look it up. He said it. The problem is you don't have enough time to figure it out. You have one and only life. Dawkins also won't tell you a dirty little secret of evolutionists. They don't know how life began. 
And here's another dirty little secret. When you get to the cosmos, they have no idea what's going on. In fact, Dawkins himself said the cosmos is still waiting for its Darwin. So just because they have PhD across their you know, chest doesn't mean they know everything. But here's the other problem with probability. There are avowed atheists who were like Dawkins who tried to disprove the probability of God and then flipped the other way and followed Christ and now are the greatest apologists of the faith. One of them is Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ, now a movie, Francis Collins, The Language of God, and Josh McDowell, who's been the several sizzling summers, evidence that demands a verdict. So if you're going with probability, you shouldn't go with Dawkins. What about this phrase, stop worrying? Stop worrying. See, Dawkins has a wrong view of God, like God is a big judge in the sky, and he wants you to live at, you know, an aesthetic, mundane life, and then he's going to judge you. And I'll get to that in a moment. But it's this last phrase that kills me, and start enjoying your life. Do you know why Dawkins can enjoy his life? Because he lives in the West, where the rule of law and Christianity was the seedbed for the lifestyle we all have today, whether you're a believer or not. Dawkins can enjoy his life because he lives under common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And many have fought wars so Richard Dawkins can have his freedom. But what Richard Dawkins isn't telling you, because he's, he's a brilliant scientist, he's a brilliant writer, he's a crummy philosopher. What he doesn't tell you is that some people enjoy life by raising their kids and going to gardens and jet skiing, and others enjoy their life by putting people in ovens and having sex with children. And I'm just being honest, and I'm just giving you a history lesson. But Richard Dawkins thinks, at the end of your life, your candle goes out. Again, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, if you look the world over, there is a morality. And the morality is a lot more succinct than you and I think. Lewis said, in some cultures you can have one wife, and in some cultures you can have four wives, but in no culture can you have any wife that you want. There's a universal law of morality because there is a moral law giver. The third false hope is what I would call a bevy or a shopping cart of second chance options. This is really popular. In other words, we, we couldn't get it right here, but in the afterlife, if there's a God, he'll give us a second chance, right? Uh, the Catholics nailed this with purgatory. You know, purgatory is like a halfway house where if you weren't as bad as Hitler or as good as Mother Teresa, uh, you'll go there and enough people buy indulgences or pray you out or you spend enough time, you'll get to heaven one day. Protestants have their version of this called universalism. They even have a Bible verse for this. This is the idea that Christ's atonement was so lofty, everyone's going to heaven one day. And they'll quote the verse, of course out of context, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the fourth option is like a silly option, that the afterlife is an enhanced earth sans God. So for Frank Sinatra, it was the great casino in the sky. If you like golf, you'll be golfing all the time. Muslims will have 70 virgins. And there's a garden variety of this type of thinking. But you know what I like to put my hopes on? Someone who actually said they were in heaven came down from heaven and went back to heaven. And the only one who ever came and told us 
from beyond the grave. To me, Jesus Christ has the words you can take to the bank. And I want to read you what he said in Luke chapter 16. To me, it's still the greatest truism about life after life. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. He was living the good life. And there was another man, a beggar, named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Desiring to be fed with crumbs from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried to the angels in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said, Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, a great gulf is fixed between us, so that no one can pass from here to there and likewise. He said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one would rise from the dead. Very sobering teaching from the lips of Jesus. When you look at this, it's, it's fascinating. I want to tell you a few things about this rich man. This rich man, like so many in America today and around the world, never thought about life after life. And we can get caught up in this. Everything's about now. Everything's about today. Everything's about going for the gusto. Everything's about how long can I live. And this man falls in the category of so many people we know thinking we got to milk everything out of this life because this is all there is. He never thought about the next life. He was like the man who, who God had blessed and he said, what do I do with this blessing? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll get the next thing because somehow life has turned out favorable and this is all there is. Now, contrast that thinking with the thinking of Jesus. Jesus said this, blessed are you, speaking to his followers, who have given up houses and lands and mothers and fathers for my namesake, you will receive a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. Jesus talked a lot about the next life. Probably most specifically in Matthew chapter 6, where he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on the earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in the steel, but store up treasure in heaven, the next life, where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in the steel. For where your treasure is, your heart will be. Now, preachers have used this text to guilt people into giving for the ages and have missed the point. Randy Alcorn nails this. He writes more about eternity than anybody I know. He's got the classic book on heaven. He has a small little book we have in the bookstore called The Treasure Principle. Listen to what he says about Matthew chapter 6. He said, giving jumpstarts our relationship with God. It opens our fists so we can receive all that God has for us. 
And when we see what it does for others and for us, we open our fists sooner and wider when the next chance comes. So we just had an offering a few minutes ago. And you probably thought it's like a quirky part of the service, something we have to do. You know what might be the most eternal thing we've done all day? Because Jesus said when you give, you are, you are entering eternity in some ways. You are giving to the things of this life and you're sending money ahead. There is a mystical, dualistic thing happening when human beings, in a form of generosity from the right heart, give. Randy Alcorn goes on to quote a verse from Jeremiah where it speaks of Josiah, the king. It said, he defended the, the poor and the needy and so it went well with him. Is not what this means to know me, declares the Lord. Proverbs says, he who gives to the poor gives to God. So there's this eternal equation going on that we see in the Old and New Testament when we give. Notice the finality of the situation. There had been a judgment, and this rich man was in torment, and Lazarus was in a place of bliss. And there was a great gulf fixed. In other words, nobody could pass. There were no second chance options. No man-made holding tanks. Notice that the man has all his faculties. He can reason. He knows it's Abraham. He can recognize people. He has a memory. You know what the most remarkable thing of the story is? Never repents. This is the problem when man plays God. How many people do you know say, if I were God, I'd give people a second chance. Because my sister never knew, and she had this in her life, and if she would have only known, it's, it's almost what this man is saying, still, send someone back from the grave, then they'll believe. Jesus said they won't believe. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets and all the people that have preached to them, they're not going to believe. This man never repents. He's passed from death to life. He's in a place of torment. And, and the, only, the only, he has remorse, see? And he still looks at Lazarus like a beggar. He's still running with how the old way worked. Have Lazarus come and serve me. No repentance, only remorse. The people in heaven will be people like that man who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are no second chances, and there is no repentance. The rich man died and faced Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It was appointed for him to die. He knew not when, and then the judgment. That word judgment in Hebrews 9, 27 is a Greek word that means crisis. The reason why the judgment is a crisis is because you're a sinner and God is holy, okay? So that's a pretty strong crisis. This is why all other belief systems and everything I mentioned today fail. You're entering into a crisis because there's no way to close the chasm between your sin and a holy God. But there is something that has closed the chasm, and that's the precious blood of Christ. We sing that song. The word blood is used more in Hebrews than any book in the New Testament outside the book of Revelation. If you want to understand anything about the Old Testament, understand this. There's a, there's, this is in Leviticus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, I've skated over chapter 8 and 9 for a reason. 
But the writer is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than the law, greater than the priesthood. Now, remember, when he's writing this, there's still a temple in Jerusalem. The Romans haven't come and destroyed the temple yet, so there are believers in Christ who are former Jews. How would you like this? You're following Christ, and all your friends are still celebrating Passover. They're still bringing lambs. There's still smoke going up. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, am I out of my mind? Am I losing it? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was a myth. Maybe Jesus never rose from the dead. And so the writer's hammering in the idea here that Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 9.23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, that was the temple, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but to, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That he should offer himself, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood from another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and to, eager, to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time. Now I'm not going to take you through chapters 8 and 9. It's one of the great studies of the Bible, but I can't do it on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to do it this fall in a Calvary campus. But, but the one thing I want to bring out to you is that, that these were copies. This was a picture book of the reality that would eventually come. For a thousand years, they were offering sacrifices in a place that was a picture of all that Christ would be. And if you go back to Exodus, and it's, and it's mentioned here, God said to Moses, make it exactly the way that I tell you to make it. Don't deviate. And in the fall, I'll take you through it. Everything in the temple was a picture of Christ. Now, look up on the screen. Uh, this is actually a life-size picture of the tabernacle in Timnah, in the Sinai in Israel. See the tour bus way in the background? That'll be us next April, okay? And uh, that is life-size. Israel was giving, let's go back one, Israel was giving something no nation had ever had, and that was a portable God. Every other nation, you had to go to a high place. Now, everything here, the linen, the brackets, the rods, everything was a picture of Christ. Again, in the fall, I'll teach about that. So there was one way in. Jesus said he was the way. There was a brazen altar there where animals were sacrificed, and there was a place to wash, and then there was the most holy place, that big tent. Next slide. In that big tent, there was a veil there where only the priests could go in, and they would attend to the showbread and the candelabra. We'll talk all about that. That was a picture of Christ. But in the holiest of the holies, next slide, one man, the high priest, could go in once a year. There was the veil. And when he would go in, he would take the blood of the sinless animal and put it on the mercy seat, and God would atone for the sins of the nation. And that was a picture of exactly what Christ has done. Now, this is with love to my Catholic friends. It says here, Christ died once. Once. 
See, a high priest had to go in every year because he was fallible. He died once. A mass, by definition, Christ dies every time. That's what a mass is. He dies every mass. It says here, he died once to atone for our sins. How do lost people get found? How do people worthy of death find life? The precious blood of Christ. He came the first time to redeem us. He comes a second time to take us home. If I could write my own tract after 35 years of the Christian life, you know what it would be? This could be your life. This could be your life. Do you know why? Because when I read the Gospels and I look at Jesus, that's what he was selling. That's what he was offering. Jesus didn't come to condemn sinners, but to, to call them to repentance. I haven't come into the world to condemn people. Jesus went to parties and he went to sinners and tax collectors. And every time he went, he was offering them a better life. Now, it was through repentance and it was through his suffering, but he was offering them to be congruent with the God who made them. Rich young ruler, had everything. Wealth, fame, he even acknowledged, I have everything, how do I get eternal life? Here's what Jesus offered. Get rid of all that. You've already had that, it hasn't worked. And follow me. Imagine if that guy followed him. May have been the 13th disciple. May have changed the world. He told his disciples, drop your nets. Fishing's great if you're called to fish. I think you guys are called to fish for men. John, drop your net. You're going to write a book that people are going to read to 2017. You guys are going to change the world. Hebrews 11. There's not a person in Hebrews 11 that would have had it any other way than God orchestrated. You think Abraham's like, man, I should have stayed in Babylon. Could have visited the Hanging Gardens, drank beer. Uh, gosh, I'm sorry I ever did this. Think Noah's sorry that he built an ark? This could be your life. See, that's, that's the gospel I understand. The God who comes and says, you're living way beneath the way I made you. And if you'll humble yourself and acknowledge who I am, I will give you a life that you'll never believe. Now, it's not a life devoid of suffering. It's not, it's not you can have your great life now. It's a life where, where here and in the life to come, we get to walk with the living God. This is the life Jesus offered day by day. We live in a culture where we idolize celebrities and famous people. And I look at some of these people and I think, how sad is this? I was reading about an athlete where when the season ends, a big truck pulls up and gets all his fancy $200,000 cars and trucks it all the way back to his home. And I'm thinking, who in the world would want to keep up with all this? Oh my gosh, I got to get up today and buy another luxury sports car. Like, like what could be more sad than that? And then I think of all my colleagues and friends in 35 years. I think of all the stories I've seen at conferences and via video and the books I've read of people that have done great things in the kingdom of God who wouldn't trade one day just to drive a fancy sports car. The book Harvest is the story of Calvary Chapel. The subtitle says, Gang Members, Drug Addicts, Mental Patients, Society's Rejects, Chuck Smith's Amazing Story of Calvary Chapel, and the pastors that God called. These are pastors, and many of them pastors some of the largest churches in America. What's ironic is nobody ever thinks about 
the man who co-authored the book with Chuck, his name is Tal Brook. I've met Tal. Tal was brilliant, raised by uh, wealthy parents in Georgetown, uh, the only child. They sent him to Georgetown, and then he went to Cal Berkeley. He came disillusioned with life like many in the 60s and kind of dropped out of life and traveled to India where he got in the inner circle of Sai Bobby, one of the most influential gurus at the time in India. And he tells a story how he was at a kiosk in India, and I just want to read this because it's just remarkable. He said, I blotted my forehead and opened a recent copy of Look, Time and Newsweek magazines. Full-page photographs held me spellbound. Sweat dripped down my arms as I stood holding these magazines in a hot crowd at South Indian Bazaar. I was at a roadside stand near Bangalore bus station in Mysore State. Human form almost jumped out of one picture. A glistening body was plunging up from the Pacific Ocean, his arms outstretched toward the blue heavens above. It was a microsecond frozen in time. Particles of ocean spray hung crystallized in space. Water frozen like glass cascaded down his torso. A million droplets beaded his skin like jewels. His face seemed to hold an ocean of joyous ecstasy. Blissful relief had turned his countenance into a smiling cathedral of hope. Here was a vintage California hippie, tan with long golden hair, clung to a lean muscular chest. The road map of this fellow's past could still be seen on his veins and his face. He had experienced everything from shooting drugs in Haight-Asbury to eating sun-ripened fruit and thumbing along Route 1 between San Francisco and L.A. Yet the face coming out of the ocean indicated that the journey had come to a joyous and unexpected end. No more striving, no more hell. Infinite peace rested on this fortunate soul. The young man in the picture had just been baptized in a cove at Corona del Mar. He had made an incredible journey from Golden Gate to eternity. He was one of, get this, 900 people being baptized that day at Calvary Chapel. The Jesus movement was going full gear on the coast. The main figure performing the baptisms in the picture was Chuck Smith, the man behind the Calvary Chapel phenomenon that was sweeping the West Coast and other parts of America. For months, this fellowship had been baptizing an average of 900 people a month. It was a phenomenon that was bewildering the secular pundits from Marcus to Leary. The pictures indicated the crowd standing in the Pacific and along the Rock Bluff had abandoned the dreams of the counterculture to become Christians, casting their lives and burdens on Christ. They abandoned the whole parcel of wild pleasures and freedoms, drugs, communal living, rejection of social norms, free sex, and Eastern spiritualities that tagged along with the radical life experiment in order to adopt Christianity of all things. From my point of view in India, the pictures suggested a serious setback. The old world biblical view with its black and white paradigms was getting a new foothold. Why? Sooner than I dared to think, I would know the answer to that question. Within a year of that quiet moment at the Indian roadside stand, I, like the fellow in the magazine, would be submerged in a lake in Charlottesville, Virginia, and come out with a new life and a smile of hope and joy. For the first time in my life, life I knew real hope. Little did I know at that time, not only would I abandon my guru, but I would become a Christian, and in time I would even end up working with the same man in that photograph, Chuck Smith. Guys, the Jesus movement hasn't stopped. It started 2,000 years ago. And we don't have 900 people being baptized on a Wednesday, but I'll bet you 900 people are getting baptized everywhere. It's never stopped. Jesus said the fields were white for harvest. It will continue 
until he comes a second time. A year ago for our staff, I wrote this, and I've written it for you guys, and I've done it on Sunday mornings, that God put three things in my heart for the next several years. Evangelism, number one. Rethinking weekends, number two. And we need a volunteer revolution, number three. Six months into this, I realized why. Because Christians don't do well in peacetime. They really don't. You know what they start doing? Whining. And there's nothing worse than a whining Christian. And I'm one of them at times. We're not good at peacetime. Give us a fight and we're amazing. But at peacetime, we become like the Corinthians. We start whining about services. We start whining about who gets cared for and who doesn't. We start whining about doctrine. We start whining about all these things. And, and I think what God's saying through all this is we need to have a wartime mentality in peacetime. There's a war, guys. There's a war. It's wonderful these people got saved at tracks and, and photographs, but we are the conduits of grace. And there are people who are walking into a Christless eternity. And we need to ratchet up what we need to do in this age. Jonathan Evans talked about how we're salt. Did you ever drive in October by the turnpike, you'll see big salt piles? They're good for nothing, right? But boy, when you spread them out on those snowy days, it makes our lives easier, doesn't it? Warren Wearsby said Christians are like manure. Put us together, we stink. Spread us out. We're pretty amazing. We're in a war. If you're in peacetime, you better read the manual. Because this is what it's all about. I praise God for tracks. I praise God for magazine pictures. But we are the conduits.